Hello everyone and welcome to The Legend Makers. I'm your host Phil and with me today is special guest, my brother slash roommate. Over the course of these episodes, we're going to explore some popular stories we love and dive a little bit more deeply into the way that those stories can act as guides or tools for understanding the world around us. We're going to be drawing on a combo of philosophy, science, and religious thought to better explore those ideas. But at the end of the day, we don't really mean this to be an educational podcast. It's just for asking questions, starting interesting convos, and having fun. Um, so, okay, because this is our first episode, we're just going to start by talking about what our perspective is and, you know, how we're going to be approaching these topics. So we're both university students. We are in kind of different professions, so you're more uh, math, hard sciences, and I'm more humanities-leaning. Vaguely. Vaguely, not quite humanities. I'm in that weird intersection of disciplines where no one knows what I do and everybody yeah. assumes that it's something it's not. Um, but we've grown up surrounded by stories, and we're coming to the table here with the thesis that we can use these stories, um, as the two of us have been doing for most of our adult lives, to put together pieces of a puzzle of what life is all about and how we as people can or should live it. And I think for me personally, I, I really love both reading and watching stories and telling stories. You are not necessarily a storyteller. I'm, I'm not very good at it, no. But I think something that I've always appreciated is that you've always kind of been there to talk, to talk through things with me and delve into... I enjoy crit crit critiquing and kind of picking apart the pieces picking of Picking apart stories. the pieces. And the reason I bring this up is because I think one doesn't have to be a storyteller. You don't have to be a writer yeah. to be able to understand the different aspects of story mm -hmm. and to, to really be able to break characters down and derive meaning from it in a bigger thematic way. So the worldview that we're coming at these episodes with is one that has accumulated kind of over a long period of time, our entire lives, both through our education, our cultural background, our personal interests. And yeah. we acknowledge that there are parts of it that we can't really break down fully off the bat. But we hope that you can kind of get to know where we're coming from over the course of this series through the kinds of things that we talk about and the issues we bring up and our, our approaches. Yeah, so everyone has a background in our, our education and our biases and we're really just uh, hoping that that'll be communicated through the way we approach topics and we can only really tackle a little bit of it at a time. But for the sake of full transparency, we, we do want to share it with you. We don't want to... Yeah kind of assume that you think about these things the same, same way, we, way do. we do. So we're going to try to be as transparent as we can about the resources we draw on. And we have a, f a few key assumptions that will be guiding the philosophy of this podcast, which are as follows. So one, mankind has been telling or humankind has been telling stories for its entire history. Um, stories and myths. Nice self-correction there. Yeah, Sorry. it's I mean, we, we want to emulate, was it Trudeau who yeah, said, was, but, that, he was but a, that was people kind. And I don't even know if that was a joke or not. It's okay, continue. Okay, so the second assumption, stories and myths are necessary for sense-making and meaning-making, and they help us reflect on our internal, so emotional, mental, and spiritual state, as well as the patterns of the world around us. 
So one of the authors whose philosophy of story we're really inspired by is J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, which incidentally is the topic of the first episode. So Tolkien presents myth as something that presents an essential but simplified reflection of reality, both subjective and objective reality, that is necessary for people to have because it makes it easier to navigate that reality. Now he refers to um, storytellers, I mean, he, he kind of compares this to the idea of a parable. Yeah. And he also refers to storytellers as legend makers, which is where this podcast got its name. Mm-hmm. So similarly, scholar Joseph Campbell has spoken extensively about the importance of myth and legend in human history as a tool for understanding the world. Essayist David Shields, in his essay, Hotel America, describes art and as such storytelling as the following, quote, art is not truth, art is a lie that enables us to recognize truth. So this is kind of like what Tolkien said. It's not a fully accurate description of what's going on. It's a condensed version that tries to capture the essence. And it tries to make particular points. And it tries to make particular Um, points. I think it's worth mentioning. We didn't come up with this, but speaking of meaning making and all that, the name legend makers kind of also indicates uh, the legend on a map where you kind of map things out. Shout out to our friend Zainab for pointing that out to us. Basically, we can also use stories in the sense of a, a, a map or a guide where the map doesn't reflect all of the details of the landscape, yeah. but gives you a general sense of what's going on and where you want to be going. Yeah. So in that vein, stories rely heavily on metaphor. Metaphor is integral to human existence and shapes our understanding of life. This is one of the key assumptions that is guiding what we're doing here. Authors Lakoff and Johnson Um, in their book, Metaphors We Live By, describe how language and thought is shaped by a dialectic between human experience and the metaphors that we use to describe it and engage with the world. Um, This idea is extended and applied to story in science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin's essay, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, which I personally really enjoy, where she describes the impact of forefronting in her case, an anthropological story that prioritizes violence and triumph against a foe over the creation and use of something as as simple yet essential as a sack or bag, hence the carrier bag theory of fiction. I think it's originally drawn on the anthropological theory of the carrier bag theory of human evolution. So she says that one, the former, frames human reality in terms of aggression, violence, and division, while the latter, the carrier bag, inherently suggests creativity, collaboration, and work that grows things like babies or crops, which are carried in the sack. So these, the point here is that the metaphor that the story is using, is using that mm-hmm. it forefronts, will ultimately shape how we understand the world that it's talking about. Yeah, it's the lens through which we're interpreting things that we ourselves are experiencing or thinking about in real life. Exactly. And stories regularly use multiple different metaphors. They're not beholden to only one. A reflexive or metacognitive ability to look back on that and identify them and understand the implications of those metaphors is really important. So finally, we assume that the act of truth-seeking or investigation of the reality around us is a positive force in life that can be framed or channeled by story. Now, this is informed by two things. 
one, the famous quote by Greek philosopher Socrates reading, the unexamined life is not worth living. And two, a statement our old high school English teacher used to make, um, without whom we really would not be here today, uh, where he would always say, all good stories are true. And I really think that that's probably the number one thing guiding why we're doing this podcast. So maybe we can talk really quickly about the format of these episodes. So overall, how we're going to do these episodes is one of us is going to try and bring a topic or a story that we are particularly passionate about. And that'll kind of be that person's episode to host. It'll be their, yeah, their little passion uh, project. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to have a brief section before we really get into the topic where we just kind of familiarize everyone and re-familiarize yeah. ourselves with what the story is, why we love it so much, funny things we like about it. Just talk about it a little bit and, and kind we of get the ball rolling. We will rate it on a totally arbitrary scale. Yes, but our <laughs> word is also law. <laughs> um, and then we'll follow that up with the thematic questions we want to ask. So some episodes like this first one are probably going to be more dense than others. It'll be different every time depending on what the story and the topic is. I think sometimes it's important to establish foundational concepts that are bigger picture and they will often require digging more deeply into them and a little bit of density. But hopefully as the episodes go on, maybe some topics will will be able to break them down further and talk about their their kind of granularity and their the different aspects to each of them in different episodes with different stories. So broad disclaimer. First, we hope that regardless of density, everyone can take away at least one yeah. new idea and perhaps one new reason to love one of their favorite stories. Yeah. And every time we have conversations like this, we are reminded of why yeah. we come back to these things so often. And I mean, once again, we have our own background. So sometimes we're going to maybe forget that we other people don't know about certain things that we're talking about. Yes. And we hope that you guys will be there to talk about it in the comments or ask if you need more reference about something. Um, but we'll try and kind of keep things light and explain anything that we do talk about. So we're not going to try and sound uh, pan, not what, what's the term? Lecturing? No, I'm forgetting the word here. The one where uh, you talk to someone as if they you think they don't know anything. Oh, paternalistic. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, I, you get my, my point. Patronizing. Patronizing. There we go. It was a T. Yeah, we don't want to sound patronizing and like over explain everything. But at the same time, we're going to try and be clear about certain things because we don't want to just assume that everyone knows. what we're Yeah, talking which about. is totally fine. I mean, we don't know everything either. We're yeah, if, honestly, if people listen to this and have ideas, please comment in the comment section, add things that you think we might have yeah, missed. Yeah, so feel free to ask us what we mean by certain things in the comments or if we can expand on it or... Yeah, or challenge yeah. our thoughts. As a broad disclaimer, this is not going to be spoiler-free. Yeah, we sort of need to talk about things in their detail. <laughs> we so. also, I mean, many of the stories that we're going to be talking about are quite popular. I think, unfortunately, we're not going to go super in-depth on the plot of things. We're just going to briefly cover it at the beginning of every episode and then... And if you haven't seen something, we're probably not going to go too deep into like plot details where you'll actually be spoiled for certain things. But the overall beats of the story are necessary for painting its 
yeah. picture. And we're going to try and focus more on thematic elements and meaning as opposed to individual uh, like plot twists or whatever. Yeah. We will occasionally comment on the perspectives or intentions of the authors or creators, but just because we pick a topic or story doesn't mean that we agree with all their beliefs, intentions, or storytelling choices. We don't need to interpret things the same way they do. I know that it has become a really uh, popular thing for people to decide that we cannot engage with any of an author's work because they were they had some bad takes in their day. I don't agree with that at all. I think that it is important to know where an author was coming from and what their perspectives were to better understand and interpret their work. But at the same time, a Puritan cutting off of everything someone has done because you don't agree with one or two things that they said is also problematic for being able to consciously and conscientiously yeah. build kind of a knowledge base of your own and your own independent understanding of the world. We're, yes. we're going to be expressing entirely our own opinions, our own ideas. Hopefully and, backed up by some sort. Yeah, it'll be based on things <laughs> that people have said or things that we've learned. So they get it. They get it. They get it. <laughs> All right. So let's get started. Okay, Phil. So what's our first topic for today? So our, our topic today is Lord of the Rings, which is possibly one of the most popular story franchises, as well as one of my favorite stories ever written. Um, and I'm very excited to be doing this topic. Uh, I know that I suggested that we do this the first as the first topic because mm -hmm. I thought that it would be a really great, it has just so much dense material to work with that it would be a really great place to begin this podcast and begin the point of this podcast talking about some really big picture issues and also some of the philosophy of this podcast as we talked about earlier is inspired by what the author of lord of the rings approached storytelling with and what, what ideas he had about it lord we're going to be talking about the fellowship of the ring two towers and return of the king um, I almost thought you were going to say Return of the Jedi. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> trilogy, trilogy, you know. Um, so I think maybe to start, Lord of the Rings is one of those things that has been around for decades. And uh, it is something that is very well known. And so we are going, and it's also a huge, complicated, long story with many moving pieces. So what we're going to do is lay down the most basic plot possible, which is, in a place called Middle-earth, a bunch of rings were made for the three main races, men, elves, and dwarves, but they were all of them deceived, for, for another, another ring, ring was made. made. Ah. And that ring was the embodiment of all evil, so a couple of guys go on a long road trip to chuck it in some lava, and a whole lot of stuff happens along the way. But it's evil lava. It's evil lava, so it kills the evil ring. It's not just any lava. It's not just any lava. So we'll be talking about both the books and the Peter Jackson films. The books in that I will occasionally be quoting things from them, which also are in the films, but the direct quote is in the book. Yeah. However, we're going to be mainly focusing on the Peter Jackson films. There have been other adaptations of Lord of the Rings, but I think Wait, the Jackson really? films... Yeah. The cartoon one. Have you oh, never oh, seen true. it? Sorry, I totally Absolutely forgot. Absolutely legendary. Because well, I know that they're remaking it with a TV show or something. Yeah, no, old, older okay, adaptations. Okay. There was this one animated one that was just... But anything else beyond that? A stage play? 
Oh, okay. I think so. I think yeah, there was a Yeah, cuz it makes sense that they would have made it before that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But we're focusing on the Peter Jackson films mainly because they are a most accessible. The books are very dense. Like if you want to call a book a brick, these books together are triple brick. They will knock you out. They will <laughs> take you out. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not bad at reading and I kind of gave up on them. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there. So, but the Peter Jackson movies are not only very accessible, they are also I in my opinion, they capture the spirit of the story um to great effect and with great care and consideration. And I think that's what's important here. So, Maybe I can talk a little bit about when you and I first engaged with Lord of the Rings because it's been around for so long. Mm-hmm. Suffice it to say, we're not experts or Tolkien historians. But I think the first time I saw the movies was probably when I was around eight years old. And, and I, I must have been You had to five. have been something like five, five and a half. We saw the movies and... Then we saw them again. You you only saw the first one for a long time there. That was the yeah, only one I, you could watch. But I was terrified of Gollum. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was also yeah. pretty terrified of Gollum, but I stuck through it, and then I had nightmares for a long time. <laughs> yeah, because I, I only ever watched Fellowship as a kid. Yeah, yeah, you, you couldn't get is, through Two Towers. Yeah, because he's in basically half the scenes of the movies after that point. And I don't think I actually fully finished it till I was 12 or 13. Yes, which is about the time that I ended up... So I read The Hobbit in... And then I read it after you. Yes, yes. So I read The Hobbit in, I think, around the early 2000s when I was in middle school. And then I got so excited about it because The Hobbit is a pretty short one-shot adventure and quite easily digestible. Yeah. And I got so excited about it that I went to the public library and I took out Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers, really intent on powering my way through these books. And I got all the way through Fellowship and about halfway through Two Towers, and I just tapped out completely. I think I read the first paragraph of Fellowship and I (laughs) stopped after that. But I think, and hilariously enough, the only thing that I remember from reading Fellowship of the Ring is... Tom Bombadil. And inter- actually, interestingly enough, I have more memory of scenes from Return of the King in the books than I do the other two because I've read excerpts from Return of the King oh, now as an then, adult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I haven't read, I've never read it in f- it fully. But, um, and then I think the, the other thing that I've read, I mean, if you think Tom Bombadil is funny, the other thing I've read in the Tolkien expanded universe uh, because Tolkien has written so yeah. much for for Middle Earth outside of the adaptation of the I think I know what you're going to say here. <laughs> so I read one chapter of the Silmarillion, which was the tale of Baron and Luthien, who are, I guess, kind of prototype Arwen and Aragorn. They're the original elf and human who fell in love. Don't they, like, steal some Infinity Stones or something? Yeah, so they jewel heist the elf Infinity Stones from you know, first level Pokemon evolution Sauron with their magic dog. And it is just, it's such a good time. I love that story so much. That's the extent of my knowledge of the Tolkien literary universe. But we've watched the movies tens of times. We've watched the movies so many times. I think I can probably recite a good chunk of them at this point. Also, I'm one of those weird people who doesn't like the extended editions. I've never seen them, so I I don't know. So Netflix has the extended editions, or it did before it took the movies down. But I I find that they they watch 
more impactfully without the additional scenes. I mean, the additional scenes are fun, but they they take out they take away from the. But don't the they pacing. include certain important elements like Faramir's relationship with Eowyn and stuff like that? Yes and no. I think some scenes are good, but other scenes are kind of you know sometimes you watch a movie and you think that oh this additional element would be nice but it's not needed for the point that the movie makes yeah well i guess because it's a movie it doesn't operate by right the same it, rules. it doesn't operate by the same rules as the book which is i think again why we'll be focusing on the the, the vibes a bit more yeah. than the gritty details of the world and all of the character lore and stuff like that because as, as there, fun are, there as, are so many there's characters. so much i mean i mentioned one of the reasons i brought up reading something like baron and luthien is because tolkien wrote pages and pages of history and lore for this world yeah the lore you know yeah. <laughs> lore capital l i think <laughs> the deep magic the deep magic lord of the rings invented the concept of lore but it really is one of those film series that gets better every time i watch it i think the only other series that achieves that is probably star wars yeah I yeah agree. agree agree so Having, okay, well, having said all of that, yeah, maybe we can go through really quickly and, and talk a little bit about our, you know, personal favorite beats before we get into the thematic stuff. Yeah, I guess we can't really cover the whole thing, so yes. we'll just kind of talk about the greatest hits. Greatest hits, In our hits. opinion. Yes. What's your favorite scene? I think for me, the biggest draw watching Lord of the Rings, like past Fellowship when I was a kid, was to just watch the Battle of Helm's Deep. Oh, yeah. At the end of Two Towers. That's a whole sequence. I mean, one of the best I mean, battle sequences yeah. ever it holds created up so in well, cinema. Too. I have to say that obligatorily. <laughs> Is that a word? <laughs> yeah, that's a word. Okay, yeah. I have to say it just because that was my favorite as a kid. Mm -hmm. But there are many other good scenes that I would I would pick from. I like how they really get you invested into the people of Rohan. Into too. the people of yeah. Rohan, yeah, and their their values and their connection to one another. Yeah, it doesn't just feel like battle. It really feels like they're protecting people and they're, mm -hmm. they're like... People that you care about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My favorite scene, I ball every time, is right at the end of Return of the King where Aragorn gets crowned king. And, you know, he, you have the ceremony, so he gets crowned, and then he sings that elvish tune um the prayer i think and then he and arwen are reunited which is adorable by the way and they walk down the citadel through the crowds as newly new yeah. king and queen of gondor and they arrive at the base of the walkway to where the four hobbits are um and you know what I'm going to yeah, say. I know but the hobbits are standing there and they come to bow to the new king and Aragorn stops them and in his, you know, in his Aragorn yeah. voice, his he great says, accent. his wonderful voice, he says, my friends, you bow to no one. And then he bows and then the whole assemblage bows and I go through it. It's <laughs> a silent tear coming down your face. <laughs> it's just, it's such a wonderful scene. I think it's an interesting encapsulation of some of the emotions that we'll be talking about yes, later yeah. of this feeling of joy after so much suffering and it just really hits home for me every time so i think i mean this is a good segue good segue what's your favorite character take, <laughs> yeah, take a if guess it wasn't obvious loyal listeners take a guess <laughs> at one of your favorite characters <laughs> i mean it's aragorn he's i i just i want to be him when i grow up he embodies so many qualities that I find it's just really admirable and important. I mean, that's the point of Aragorn. He's supposed to be the kind of guy who 
you look at and you think, yeah, this guy should be the king of the realm. Like, yeah. you know, he's he has everything that makes a good leader. And I think that for me personally, there is a combination of just dignity, tenderness, and depth of emotion that for me, who's always been quite a, an emotional person, I feel very deeply. Um, but it's always kind of been a struggle to temper that with dignity and composure. and composure and he does it so well yeah. you know he's always every time he speaks you can feel with him you feel what he's feeling yeah that's true but he's also somebody that you immediately want to look up to yeah. okay i guess i have to say my favorite character and i i would say aragorn but there are so many great options and i think aragorn is a bit too obvious for me i have to be a little edgy here <laughs> and i think i'd have to say Gollum. And it sounds funny because I was so terrified of him. And that's yeah. part part of the reason why he, I think he's my favorite. Besides uh, Andy Serkis's really good performance. I mean, it's it just blows it's you away. It's immaculate. Yeah. All of the actors' performances are, are phenomenal. Yes, I mean, but his in particular, considering the technological yes. elements of it. I think what I always feel Frodo's relationship to Gollum very strongly because mm -hmm. at first I was also kind of disgusted and terrified of yes, him. Yes, yeah. And the more I was able to actually see him and interact with him in the story, the more I felt the pity and the kind of, I felt like I would, in Frodo's position, also want to take care of him and mm -hmm. grant him mercy and try and give him a second chance. Mm -hmm. Because you see such a real struggle in him. Mm -hmm. um, you see, he's almost in, in many ways, as Tolkien, I think, intended, mm -hmm. a reflection of people yeah. struggle, like an ordinary person who struggles with darkness and this kind of... And who's kind of been corrupted. Exactly, the, the two sides to... Yeah. scope of vision completely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's a particular scene where Faramir is trying to manipulate uh, Frodo into telling him who they are, and he threatens Gollum's life, and Gollum is so innocent in that scene, singing in the like pool of water mm -hmm. and brutally murdering this fish. Yeah, it's kind of pathetic. It's pathetic, but it, it also... It makes you see him as a living being yes. who deserves life. Yeah. Right. He yeah. doesn't deserve what's been given to him, yeah. even though he's made mistakes. And I think that that contrast is so great for me because you hate him so much yeah. at times and he's absolutely the worst. And when he does evil actions, they're so conscious and willful. Yeah. But, but when he does good deeds, you just feel like there's this sliver of goodness in mm -hmm, him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. He's just very well portrayed, I think. Mm -hmm. very and an excellent foil to Frodo. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and I guess that's good for going, going into turn, uh, yeah, our next thing. Favorite character relationship, which for me is Frodo and Sam. Which who, is sort of the other which side. Which is of sort that of point. the other side of Frodo and Gollum. But I think that I mean they carry the trilogy. Their yeah, their really relationship do. is the whole point. That's you know the embodiment of the struggle for the ring and the ultimate reason why good triumphs over evil is Frodo's endurance of spirit but that is only really made possible because of sam's complete loyalty and devotion and loving heart in terms of fair, favorite character relationship for me i i really like i'd have to say gandalf's relationship with pippin in particular and also mary's relationship with eowyn yes uh, i think both of those are adorable just the way those two characters develop from being kind of the laughing stock of the, yes. the story to really showing bravery in their own unique ways. I think it it 
it flows well with respect to Frodo and Sam's story because the more isolated they become, mm-hmm. the more Merry and Pippin become kind of integrated into the, the world. wider world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I always found that Gandalf's relationship with Frodo from the beginning is very fatherly. He's mm-hmm. kind of his wise mentor. Yeah. He's very gentle with him. He understands the burden that he's going to face. Yes. And that he has basically given exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah. He feels really bad, I think, but he's also there to help him. Yes. Whereas with Pippin, he's kind of, uh, he just doesn't want to be his friend, but he he's has no choice. He's a really reluctant friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And But they do kind of develop a, a respect for each other, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is really uh, cute to see. So time to rate this story on a completely arbitrary scale. Is this something we're going to be doing every time now? This is something we're going to be doing every time. Okay, let's get to it. So what are our categories? Iconic moments, memeability. Of course. Aesthetic and soundtrack. And the most important, whether or not they have good wigs. This is your category. This is my category, but it's a very valid category. I have no horse in this race. I think if you're going to make a movie where people wear wigs, which they do all the time nowadays, put in the effort so that it doesn't look like a wig. You know, there's there's always this, this gap between the hair and the head. Regular hair doesn't look like that. And I swear to God, man, everything they make nowadays, there's that gap between the hair and the wig. I don't want to keep thinking that the guy's wearing a wig. And Lord of the Rings, for whatever reason, you know everyone is wearing wigs. You know this 100%. You don't even have to guess but you never think about it. It's just so seamlessly integrated into the world that everyone has these crazy hairstyles. So it gets a 10 out of 10 on wigs. Okay, I guess we're done with that section. Most excellent wigs out there. <laughs> I think topped only by the Star Wars prequels. Okay, so we know the wigs are good. What about, what about everything else? Maybe, okay, maybe say some iconic moments that you're really like. I mean, there are so many. First one, I mean, we brought up Helm's Deep, the Balrog scene. The bit with the ghosts. Come at him with the sword and Aragorn holds up yeah, the sword actually. of Isildur. And... In the first one, I've always loved the bit with Arwen and the water horses. That is so epic. I don't I know think... if that's from the book or not, but it was pretty Most cool. of the scenes with Arwen are not actually from the book because she's a much more minor character okay, in the yeah. books. But yeah, that scene was formative for weird horse girl Phil at the age of eight. <laughs> I watched that scene and transcended to another plane. <laughs> That scene, I think, I mean, classic and enduringly upsetting scene is Boromir's death. I was just thinking of that. I, the older I get, the more it gets me. When I was a kid, I didn't understand it's, it's it. It's even just the whole sequence from him dying to him, to Frodo's scene with Aragorn. Oh, when, where... when the camera pans on Aragorn and then on the ring and then on Frodo and, and you, yeah. the audience, are thinking, is he going to go for the ring? And then his hands gently close well, because around it, Frodo's. It's, it's like in direct contrast to what to Boromir, what just, Boromir went through. just went through. And then you have the scene after that where Aragorn consoles Boromir yes. after he's, oh, when he's dying. The forehead kiss. <laughs> the forehead kiss. it's the forehead kiss for me the lighting of the beacons we have to bring that up yeah. chills every time i think a lot of these sequences are just they were incredible feats of cgi when they first came out yes yeah you know that something like that was unprecedented similarly the the sequence oh my god when gandalf goes out to meet the Nazgul in Return of the King oh, to yeah. save Faramir's life. Mm. And he raises his staff and that beam of light just comes out. 
and the the shadows oh. kind of retreat. Yeah, I mean that that scene has great music, so it reminded me of uh, the last March of the Ants. Oh yeah, that song that's also me. incredible. Yeah. yeah, when they the ants show up and take down Saruman's tower. Yeah, I think I think that about covers that. Like, that we don't want to talk about it. every detail. Yeah, there's just so many. I mean, classic, and this goes into memeability, but uh, <laughs> I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. I think, I mean, Lord of the Rings is one of the original meme level stuff out there on the internet. Yeah, I mean, people, it's up there with people, the Star Wars prequels. It's definitely sure. up there with the Star Wars prequels. And I think, you know, I think this is just because it's a story with so much great dialogue that, but yeah. it's, it's really kind of overwrought dialogue. And the movies sell it because the actors do such a great job in their performances and also it's framed and directed well. Though also the direction is kind of hilarious and ties into yeah. this meme ability. There's that one sequence with Arwen and Aragorn in the garden in Rivendell and the whole thing, there's like Enya music playing in the background <laughs> and the camera is only on their eyes. You see nothing else but their eyes. You don't see their mouths moving. It's just they're, they're gazing into each other's souls and it's hilarious. But as you're watching, you are vibing so hard. Yeah, for me like that, pretty much every scene with Theoden King is just that. It's so funny, but it's serious <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just the original, one does not simply blank. One does, yeah, one does not simply blank. All right, then keep your secrets. <laughs> the, I mean, classic Witch King of Agmar, I am no man. When Eowyn oh, yeah. destroys that guy, that was that's so legendary. Is that a meme? It's both a meme and an iconic moment. I think okay. this is, again, this is why Lord of the Rings excels in all of these categories. I guess many of the iconic moments are also memes. There's, the, there's an overlap. There's a definite overlap. What about second breakfast? Oh, true, true. Also, the way they say, wait, is it tomato or potato? Or Yeah, there are just too many. There to are list. so many. We could sit here listing them all day. I, I mean, mean we, yeah, we're going to say aesthetic and soundtrack. I think that has to be a 10 out of 10, too. 12 out of 10. 300 out of 10. We talked about the wigs, but I think they, they blend wigs. so seamlessly into the costumes, the set design. Everyone is, is wearing costumes. You don't you never think that this is stuff that real people it's very costumey. Like if you look at the fabrics, if you yeah, look I mean, at it's it's not some historical productions, the fabrics look you know, when it's a good historical production, the fabrics look very authentic in the sense that people aren't wearing velvet and you yeah. know, stuff like that. They aren't using modern fabrics. They're not using modern fabrics. But Lord of the Rings has a lot of very costumey outfits, but none of them feel um, modern or like p these people are on a, in a stage play. The prosthetics, the orcs look so good. The orcs look insanely look good. Amazing. And the other thing, one, I know this is your pet peeve, so wigs are my oh, pet yeah. peeve, but everyone has bad teeth. Um, but it's believable. But bad it's teeth. believably bad teeth, yeah. which is, I mean, I think that this is also because this was in an age before all actors kind of were beholden to get plastic surgery. Is so, that a thing for your teeth? I, I don't. It's become a lot more common nowadays for people to get cosmetic surgery um, when they have money. Yeah, but that's fair. back in the day, so this was early two thousands. I think it had kind of not quite yet reached that. Yeah, that's true. Fad, and so a lot of the actors all very good looking across the board um both the men and the women but they Not they just the men <laughs> <laughs> but the children too <laughs> so they they just look like people they look like attractive people they look but... like attractive people but 
it's it's well balanced. It's well balanced yeah. with the kind of the dirt and the 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 styling of the hair and the costumes and the chainmail. I mean, yeah. the series came up with an entirely new technique to build chainmail, which is fascinating. I mean, um, it would be a crime for us not to bring up the absolute legend, Sir Christopher Lee. Sir Christopher Lee, man who could describe in detail what it sounds like when another man gets stabbed. Yeah. I mean, he just <laughs> looks like himself. I don't even, I don't even know <laughs> if he was in costume. That he does. <laughs> and, and the music is the also music, Howard. I think I read somewhere that Howard Shore came up with, or this was one of the most intricate instances of layering musical motifs i mean i'm not an expert in music at all so don't quote me on this i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> but he you know when a character has a motif so howard shore was documented to have have had so many layers of character motifs changing and having variations of them I, I throughout the story that it was kind of unprecedented no other series had done that up until that point to that degree. I mean, obviously, there had been that kind of style of, of musical make, music making. The environments, too. Environments, the natural... New Zealand is so New beautiful. Zealand is... I, God, I wish I was there. Just, oh, yeah, yeah, the language. The the languages. I think that the, the development of... Like, I mean, Tolkien yeah. is known for the attention to detail, to language, and the developing of the lore, capital L. But, but um, the way they all have accents and yeah, the accents the, kind of are pretty consistent. The accents surprisingly. are pretty consistent. And I really love how um, the weird accent that Viggo Mortensen does for Aragorn, for Aragorn because yeah. he's been all over the place. And I think when I was a kid, I always kind of thought, what's with this voice, man? You know, I, I can't pinpoint what his accent is supposed to be. And it's because it's this amazing mix of, you know, Gondor the shire area and and yeah. those parts and the mountains and, and elvish, and, elvish. Um, and he kind of slips in and out depending on who he's talking to i mean Viggo mortensen is just fluent in like seven languages anyway so what a guy <laughs> what a guy <laughs> i i love that anecdote from the um from the behind the scenes where uh all the other actors are like what what did you take away from the the production and they're like oh i took my sword i took my axe and um Viggo mortensen was like uh what we take away is in here and he points to his heart and in here and he points to his head <laughs> legend he also totally took his sword though <laughs> well um, 200 out of 10 yeah lord of the rings for, for the overall rating lord of the rings is in masterpiece tier masterpiece tier okay What's the theme that we, we want to talk about here? I mentioned earlier, um, Lord of the Rings has many overarching themes, but the one that we wanted to explore today is something called eucatastrophe, which is actually a term that was coined by the author of the book series, J.R.R. Tolkien, in probably 1940-something. And so what is eucatastrophe? Tolkien describes it as, quote, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, which he argues is the highest function of fairy stories to produce. And it was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth, he says. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back. 
It perceives, if the story has literary truth on the second plane, that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. So that was a lot. Oh, yeah, that was a bit uh, tough uh, to understand. <laughs> Basically, uh, my understanding of Tolkien's point here is that in the face of impossible odds, right where you think everything is hopeless or lost, there is some greater meta-narrative will, reality, or force that proves to you and or the characters in the story that such is not actually a ca the case and there is triumph and transformation, specifically um, of the good over evil kind. So Tolkien says that this is the staple of good fairy tales. and. There are tons of examples of this, big and small, in the Lord of the Rings series, both the books and the movies, where characters on the brink of defeat achieve victory. So, I mean, off the top of my head, you know, Gandalf arriving with the Rohirrim at Helm's Deep, that completely epic moment where he's like, on the morn of the third day, look to the east, and then yeah. they look to the east and the sun is shining down the big hill to the... the for a metaphor, it's very literal. <laughs> it's, yeah, for a metaphor, it's very literal. And we'll talk later about um, yeah. the sun as a metaphoric image here. But, um, I mean, another is the fall of Sauron at the very end of the series, right? You yeah. know, they feel like they're right at the brink of defeat. Aragorn's being crushed under that guy's foot. And then the, the tower falls. Yeah. A key point here, though, is that I think catastrophe as Tolkien presents it, is not a plot device or random will of the author. It's not like... Oh, plot twist. Yeah. I gotcha. You thought that something bad was going to happen, but it's psych. not It's not really a cop-out or an ex machina where just something happens for the sake of it to solve everyone's problems. Yeah. So it's, it's an integrated part of the universe and of different characters' decision-making. The victory, but the, but the thing is, the victory is not something that the characters in the moment can see with their present scope of action and understanding. Um, I think Tolkien says this like your whole nature quote chained in material cause and effect right you're you're only seeing the the physical thing right in front of you the the linear cause yeah. and effect right in front of you um not the very complex web of intention decision and reaction that is actually taking place in the wider world so the way i like to think of it is layers of meta narrative Kind of like an onion or a subway subway map of plot <laughs> subway. Sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you said subway, but I was just thinking about Shrek. Continue. Uh, so a subway map of plot and decision webs that converge to cause victory and hope in the face of suffering and despair. There are micro versions of it in kind of smaller character moments, and there are also meta versions of it at big climactic moments, like the climax of the whole series or the rescue of Sam and Frodo from the lava via eagles, which is something people meme about all the time. But actually, I think that it's a really interesting reflection of Tolkien's conviction in this idea of eucatastrophe. So important to say, Tolkien discussed this concept very explicitly in the context of Christian mythos, describing it as I mean, he describes the concept of the resurrection of Christ as the ultimate example of eucatastrophe in myth. And while that's really imp interesting for me personally to think about when considering the resurrection as a metaphor, we're not going to look at eucatastrophe from any particular religious lens today. 
Instead, what I want to do is uh, explore its main assumption and the implications of that for how we live our lives and whether it's as such worth more investigation and thought beyond mm, just yeah, so, this conversation. Yeah, we should be clear about that. For anyone who doesn't know, Tolkien was a very devout Christian. Who, devout Catholic, I think. He's yeah. actually the guy who converted C.S. Lewis. Yes. Um, yeah, because they were good friends. Um, who is a uh, very famous Christian apologist. So basically all of know. both of their writings, C.S. Lewis, Lewis wrote uh, Narnia. It's, it's It has a lot of Christian metaphor. That's kind of the crux of its its storytelling inspiration. Yes, though I will say that Tolkien's approach to presentation of metaphor and story and Lewis's approach are very different. So yes, it's true. not quite accurate to conflate them together because they disagreed on the execution of things yeah. a lot. Yeah. But... But the, the point is the that point the is... story of Lord of the Rings is fundamentally coming from a religious perspective on reality. On truth, yeah. yeah. On, on higher purpose and truth and yeah. um, what Tolkien so calls generally speaking, a world uh, beyond our own. I yes, think. yeah, he does say that. I think there are two main assumptions underlying the concept of eucatastrophe. Um, the two premises being that, one... There is some truth or reality beyond that of merely physical or material, um, i.e. the realm in which there is no evidence that there will be joy and redemption that transcends suffering. And that, two, human beings are capable in small part of reflecting the principles of that reality and thereby harnessing that effect through their conscious actions and efforts. So that was, again, we should, we should break this down a bit yeah. more because that was... Uh... Very intense. That was very intense. So the first one, most major. Tolkien describes that when faced with eucatastrophe, people experience joy beyond the walls of this world, quote unquote. Eucatastrophe assumes the existence of a metaphysical, which in the context of a story is usually a meta-narrative, right? The, a, a plan or a vision for the story um, or an existence of our world outside the world of the story that the story mm. is kind of a microcosm of. Yeah, so meta-narrative, I guess, uh, fundamentally just the word means a story that is above the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tolkien puts this as a will or agency beyond the walls, quote-unquote, of the character's immediate world. This isn't really an assumption that's unique to Tolkien. I mean, I'm sure that Many people are aware that this idea of an immaterial and willful reality not tied to the purely physical has been discussed by plenty of people throughout the centuries from, you know, Socrates to the Laurent to physicists um, like George Greenstein or, you know, others. Yeah. And I mean, any assumption regarding that kind of willful metaphysical reality kind of requisites the philosophical question of God and discussion of deism versus theism. So active will of God versus a God that's just chilling. Yeah, so um, deism, uh, theism is the belief that God created the universe and his will still pervades everything and yes. he has a plan for the world. Deism is the philosophical position that God created the world and just left it to its own devices. Like it's like a clock that's just running on yeah. its own. Um, and we don't really want to get into that now. Yeah, the it's... reason to bring it up is that both of those kind of inform an idea of um, yeah. a metaphysical existence or meta narrative for the world. But for now, um, we bring it up because we want to say that, okay, if we accept the premise that existence has a non-physical side to it, 
um, that also has some kind of binding spirit that carries will or universal design, which is an assumption that's shared by almost all religions, many philosophies, and indeed some fields of science like theoretical physics, we can focus on its possible implications for both Tolkien's stories and our own lives. Yeah, so I'm, I'm probably going to just jump in here just so we can really uh, hammer this down because the, the question of non-physical reality is one that I think is relevant, whether, when, whether or not you want to tie it to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, the issue is there's a lot of uh, reading material and, and context out there. But uh, maybe from my perspective, uh, I'll bring up the fact that it's not just a religious or philosophical question. Mm-hmm. It's also a scientific question in, in terms of the foundations of the philosophy of science there there are th- these kinds of assumptions that are, are relevant they just often aren't taught or discussed in uh like experimental scientific communities mm-hmm. so when many scientists in the past discussed their work or the foundations of science there were a precise reflection of these two assumptions that tolkien talks about the first one being does the universe have some sort of binding universal rules of operation that are essential features of its existence. So mm-hmm. philosophically, they they exist primary to creation. Yes. So they're kind of informing the way that creation operates as opposed to them being just a result of creation existing. Yeah. Second of all, whether or not human beings are capable of comprehending and capturing this type of universal objective truth, even in some small capacity. Yeah, yeah which is kind of what the second assumption that Tolkien talked about, where we have to have some sort of connection to the metaphysical in mm-hmm. order to be able to... In our capacity. Our... In order to be able to yeah. talk about it and understand it. And so science and scientific endeavor have always needed to hold these assumptions as fundamental or as being axioms, mm-hmm. because you need to justify the usefulness of science um, in a philosophical sense. You really can't deny that at least that these assumptions are probably true to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Probabilistically. Uh, well, even, I mean... from a logical argument perspective. Yeah, for, for me, I mean, I study uh, more science and math than I do the humanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and historically, it's been proven over and over again that there will be certain abstract or theoretical concepts that are derived purely through math or purely through just abstract reasoning and mm-hmm. logic that have that people just do it for fun mm-hmm. because it's elegant or mm-hmm. it's nice or it, it's cool mm-hmm. and then maybe hundreds of years down the line they'll it'll just be discovered as being a part of the physical world yeah and people just didn't know until yeah. that point um, because i think a lot of times people think or are taught that science is really just a technology mm-hmm. and it's really just material advancement mm-hmm. but many of the technological advancements that we've had have actually been forefronted by work done purely yeah. for the sake of abstraction and beauty yeah. in the past by mathematicians who really had no idea why they were doing it or where it would go. They just thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And it was some a purely abstract idea that just ended up being really necessary for mm-hmm. some sort of technological advancement down the road. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think clearly there are elements of non-physical thought and reality that human beings engage with that have very real and observable effects in nature and design operation of the world and you can't really deny that aspect of 
Tolkien's assumption, yes. whether or not it's explicitly spiritual or, or religious. Or linked to a divine um, in the traditional yeah. religious sense. It is relevant to yes. think about a layer of reality that isn't necessarily physically observable mm -hmm. because you or have... sensible, conceivable with your five senses. Exactly. You yeah. have certain forms or ideas that are abstract and then they connect to many different uh, particular representations of them in the world. Yeah. Like you can model different systems in the world with one mathematical idea and mm -hmm, it, it mm -hmm. maps out to many different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is a really great segue into uh, one of the points that I wanted to bring up on the different aspects of his assumption of the meta narrative, which is that specifically the, the his concept of eucatastrophe that there will be a revival or redemption that is joyous and hopeful at the end of something really dark and full of suffering is interestingly constantly reflected in the natural world. And I mean, we don't want to commit the fallacy of projecting observed human experience onto nature and say that, well, it's in nature because we see it in nature, because nature is so complex that you can pretty much find anything you yeah, want you in can, it to prove your point. You can justify anything you, you can want. justify anything. But it is interesting that um, from a metaphoric perspective, the arrival of spring each year, despite the awfulness of winter, has been something that, I mean, has been observable by human beings and considered sacred and important by human beings for pretty much since the dawn of time. And many poets have commented on this and many, you know, religions have also brought this up, yeah. this idea of a divine springtime in something like the Baha'i faith, um, or a quote that comes to mind from poet Gretchen Marquette, where she says, spring has arrived, let me not despair. And I bring this up because Tolkien actually explicitly discusses this in dialogue in one of the scenes in Return of the King, where after the battle, battle of Pelennor Fields, Faramir and Eowyn are in the Halls of Healing. And um, I think it's Faramir who turns to her, don't quote me on this, and says that the chill in the air is just the first stirrings of spring and he does not believe that the darkness will endure. And this is before they've won at the end of it, because they both kind of get out of commission after the first of many battles and Return mm -hmm. of the King, and so they're there, and Eowyn is very depressed because she lost her uncle, and, mm -hmm. you know, she felt like she didn't, even though she sl slew the Witch King, she doesn't feel fulfilled in her act of bravery, bravery or in battle, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, this idea of renewal, any cycles of renewal, we can see it in nature, right? The sun rises every day to save the world from the darkness and cold of night. And I think uh, I found this really interesting quote by author Catherine May in one of her writings that it, it's discussing folklore and she's referring to a particular story. So she says, quote, as we so often find in ancient folklore, the Kaliach, Kalich, I don't know how to pronounce Is this. Is that the particular story? That's the particular story. Yeah. Offers us a cyclical metaphor for life one in which the energies of spring arrive again and again, nurtured by the deep retreat of winter. We are no longer accustomed to thinking this way. Instead, we are in the habit of imagining our lives to be linear, a long march from birth to death 
in which we mass our powers only to surrender them again, all the while slowly losing our youthful beauty. This is a brutal untruth. And I guess the brutal untruth she's referring to is the kind of false understanding of life as being this linear march to death. Yeah, whereas what it really is is, you know, cycles of renewal and hope and mm -hmm. a glimpse of the greater truth that yeah. Tolkien talks about, which leads us to the next aspect of this eucatastrophe uh -huh. meta-narrative. Well, I mean, if I can actually just yeah, jump in, because that, before we move on, uh, that idea of sort of glimpsing this larger truth that we usually can't see. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we talked about this already about Tolkien describing something beyond the walls of this world. Once again, in my studies, uh, I always like to think about concepts of emergence and complex mm -hmm. systems and sort of the large scale of time that the world operates on that our human perspective is difficult for it, it mm -hmm. to perceive and understand a lot of time. We can't really operate our minds on that scale. And you can read into complexity and uh, chaos and those kinds of ideas if you want. Mm -hmm. And we'll probably talk about them more. I'm planning to do yeah. a Jurassic Park episode, which is oh, one yeah. of my favorite things. But uh, so the, the, just fundamentally, I'm sure many people have heard about the butterfly effect yes. just conceptually. There are choices that you can make that just ripple far beyond what you can understand. Mm -hmm. And there are different points in history that just kind of converge into a certain result that prime the world in different ways. You know, it, it paints a picture, it sets things up mm -hmm. and there there's causality that isn't just linear. It isn't just one thing cause another. It's non-linear, meaning that it's really difficult to impossible to predict. Mm -hmm. And this is all well documented and, and scientific and the world isn't as simple as our our minds lead us to believe mm -hmm. often and there is this other level to reality that is often difficult for us to understand mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before it happens and there are also scientific ideas more with respect to physics so there's physical interconnectedness but physics also goes into issues of consciousness and quantum entanglement and more kind of yeah. weird complex I mean, stuff we're going to talk about this stuff in more depth in later episodes yeah. i think but but, it, but there are just to just to bring it up there yeah. are many scientific ideas that, that talk about these layers of, of reality that mm -hmm. we can't really see mm -hmm. in in the moment um, yeah but it but it does converge into the uh, cyclical again and again you know well there there are patterns is yes, my point there are, there, there are patterns that we can't see before they happen Mm -hmm. This is going to be really goofy, but I love Daredevil season three, right. the show. And one of my favorite quotes, spoilers once again, for the, the one of the last episodes in the show is because the character is Catholic and the show talks about that a lot. Oh, yeah. He brings up the issue of God's tapestry and how we as human beings can't see this beautiful tapestry, or I guess you could also mm -hmm. refer to it as like a painting or, yeah. or whatever, any metaphor you want to use, a piece of art. Um, that we can only see the back of the canvas. Yeah. We can see the loose threads and the the kind of paint splashes and, and yeah, this and that. Yeah. You can't really see the whole thing in its yeah. beauty because you're just in a small corner yeah. of it. And I think that concept is is pretty much very close to what Tolkien what is, Tolkien is, is, assuming. is assuming. Yeah, I think that that goes that segues really well into um, this idea of truth as reality that Tolkien said is something really interesting that I wanted to talk about that Tolkien describes eucatastrophe as a glimpse of truth but 
the cycle that eucatastrophe represents is also, as we've just described, a really interesting reflection of reality, of what is real. And this uh, equivocation or synonymization of truth with what is real um, is something that's been discussed by philosophers and scientists in the past. So, I mean, uh, the there was a holy man from the Middle East in the 1800s named Abdu'l-Bahá, who had, who, I mean, directly quote, quoted saying, the reality is the truth. He has um, a series of very interesting talks that he did in Paris and uh, North America. And in many of them, he brings ideas like this up and he describes actually the same metaphor of truth as the sun, um, as something that comes in and kind of opens our eyes to this bigger picture um, mm -hmm. in a land that is shadowed. Mm -hmm. um, again, Tolkien uses very similar imagery, yeah. even though he's coming at it from a different faith background, where Mordor is the realm of shadow, is the realm mm -hmm. of darkness. And when Sauron is defeated, or, you know, when Gandalf shows up to yeah. Helm's Deep is a perfect example of the just the beam of sunlight. Mm -hmm. And, the you know, when dawn and, and it, the it third day, the and it blinds all the creatures of the dark, right? The orcs and the, the orcs. evil people. And I think another really interesting example of this is yeah, I was Plato's say. allegory of the cave. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, we're we'll link a really great uh, kind of review of it down in the description. Is, it, is this the Crash Course video? This is the Crash Course video, my boy yeah. Hank Green. But basically, so Plato was an old-timey philosopher, philosopher old in, ancient, in ancient Greece. <laughs> and um, That's one way of putting it. <laughs> his allegory of the cave is in a very brief... Well, you can... Here, I'll give you a brief rundown. Basically, okay. there's a guy in a cave with his buddies, and all they see are shadows on the wall, and that's their entire reality that's all they experience and one day one of them finds his way out of the cave somehow and he sees the real world and he sees that all of the shadows they were seeing on the walls were just silhouettes of real people and mm -hmm. real things that were happening outside yeah and when he goes back in to tell everyone of his great discovery they say oh you're crazy and they yeah. i don't know if they actually kill him or not they, that, uh, let's not go there <laughs> in some versions it's pretty dark in some versions it's less dark but they they ignore him they don't believe him. They think he's crazy yeah. uh, because they just have no way of seeing the world beyond. And I think that's just from a basic perspective. It's it's the same kind of reflection of being trapped in darkness and only being able to see a limited perspective of something versus being shown the light, so to speak, and op opening your eyes to a whole other layer of reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a very common philosophical metaphor. Mm -hmm. What I actually find really interesting here is that Plato's allegory of the cave kind of parallels what Tolkien says about how eucatastrophe doesn't negate the real suffering that is going on, nor mm -hmm. the suffering that you will probably continue to experience even after the, the instance of eucatastrophe. You will experience the joy, but that doesn't negate the very real lived human experience of suffering. And play, it, you see this in the allegory of the cave because the guy comes back and, yeah. he, you know, his friends are still stuck and he's also kind of still stuck. He can't just... He can't just leave he them. He can't just leave them. And they don't believe him or in darker versions, they <laughs> turn on him and et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting that it's not easy to experience eucatastrophe 
No, and, and, and definitely you, you in the story, this, the, the characters, the story, yeah, Frodo, they go through hell and back. Yeah, and, and Frodo is, at the very end of the story, he he has to leave. He goes to the next, you know, he, sail, yeah, he, 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 he sets sail out. on the boats. He pieces out of because, reality. He's had enough. Yeah, well, because he did ultimately experience the catastrophe. They were saved by the eagles amidst all the lava, but he had suffered so much that... Mm-hmm. You know, he needed reprieve from it. He, he, yeah. you know, had to go on and leave the, I, I guess, mean, he basically dies, but like he, he chooses to die. He basically dies, so but speak. he chooses to die. And it's really interesting. It's a very because, peaceful metaphor in that world. Because if you think about it, he's like, he's, he's leaving what Tolkien described as the, the material realm, I guess. Like if you think of Middle Earth Middle as Earth, that realm yeah. where characters can only see a limited scope of what's going on around them. And every so often they get the glimpse of you catastrophe and they can have vision for the future, right? Mm. But they're still kind of beholden to that kind of day-to-day suffering. And it's not inherently bad, right? I mean, they they talk about it a lot. And I love that quote from Gandalf where he says that I will not tell you do not weep because not all tears are evil or sad or something like that. Uh-huh. It's not that they're crying happy tears, they're crying sad tears. They've yeah. they've all suffered a lot. But it's it's this idea that that experience of, of suffering goes complementary with A, the human exist, experience, and B, this greater and more joyful truth of the human experience that is mm-hmm. beyond simply your material suffering, your experience of bad things day to day. To, to bring it to our own lives for a little bit. In a way, understanding or growing in your, I don't know really how to say this, I think a great word that's used in many philosophies and religions is enlightenment, mm-hmm. where seeing the truth of life or seeing a glimpse of what it's all about. And it's not necessarily a, an instantaneous thing where it just happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, temporarily at least like it's not like one day you're just sitting there and then another second you've attained enlightenment Mm -hmm. it's a very it's a very slow process and it involves a lot of suffering but the metaphor here has to do with truth being this healing force Mm -hmm. that it, it, it puts your suffering into perspective yes it helps you understand why everything has happened yeah and that creates peace within you Mm-hmm. It, it calms you it stops the uh it stops it takes away the power over you that that suffering used to have mm-hmm. um and i think that idea is is very strongly tied to the issue of non-physical will or, or yeah, reality or metaphysical will or reality that we're with agency, because, yeah because that what we were talking about with the tapestry and, and all of yeah. that that higher perspective on on the world so to speak the god's eye view or the the perspective of spiritual or the the perspective i guess um what is it that gandalf says there are more forces yes i was gonna bring it up later but Uh the i mean another one of my absolute favorite quotes but in fellowship of the ring there's that scene in the minds of moria where frodo says that you know i wish i did not live in such times i wish that the burden of the ring did not come to me and Gandalf tells him to have hope because they, I wrote it down here. Hang on. Um, there are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. So it's this issue of uh, 
higher forces, higher meaning that you aren't necessarily capable of seeing. Mm -hmm. And, and when you do see it, you're seeing truth. But I think the right. key here is that it's not just that it's like a cop-out of I'm having a really rough time and yeah. I just see this kind of shining light in the sky and I think, wow, my rough time is totally insignificant, so it's okay now. I think mm -hmm. the key which goes into Tolkien's second assumption about catastrophe is that you are capable of tapping into that higher agency, that, that will. Mm -hmm. You are capable of actively tapping into that design and becoming a willful agent you can embody logic truth. of it yeah. yeah you can be and an in, agent of in truth. doing so fight back against your suffering and make things better right mm -hmm. and so which brings us to this well and that spreads it to others it when, spreads when, it to others when yeah. you are providing that light and that truth so let's world. get there. Let's get. Okay, we're sorry, getting sorry, there. Sorry. I don't want to get too <laughs> um, into myself. So you know, if we're talking metaphors, truth is something that you can actually actively investigate. It's also something that you can experience through others and reflect or embody in your own actions. For example, you can be truthful, right? People, yeah. People say that all the time. Um, so how does this relate to the characters in Lord of the Rings? Well. The meta narrative or higher reality or truth is constantly reflected in individual characters or humans. Not that they're all human, but you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Capacity for good, right? So characters in Lord of the Rings reflect attributes of the triumph of Gandalf's forces of good concept within their decisions and efforts throughout the story. I mean, flawed as they are, um, they still put into action tenderness, love, compassion, kindness, courage, loyalty, and justice at many points throughout the story, even if it's at personal detriment or mm -hmm. difficulty to themselves. Yeah. And what's the key here is that within the logic of the story their efforts are not in vain the characters exist even though it might appear even though it might first. appear so at first right like bilbo being merciful to gollum in the hobbit right yeah made it such that gollum gave away the location of the ring and kind of screwed a lot of people over for a long period of time yeah right so at face value that mercy did not seem like the right decision but the characters exist in this intricate web where the actions of some will affect those of another down the line and indeed in some ways will actually be the trigger for, for yeah. you catastrophe. There are increasingly complex decision webs at play, right? As I said, Bilbo showing mercy to Gollum ultimately allowing Gollum to act as guide to the hobbits, whereas they really could never have reached Mordor otherwise. Yeah, they could. And and even through that whole thing, Gollum never is fully redeemed. He's never fully redeemed, but... But he's necessary. He's necessary. His journey, His journey is something that, yeah. that contributes to... The fall of evil. The fall of evil, right. And, I mean, similarly... Arwen's love for Aragorn keeps him alive through falling off the cliff. I know there's like some mystical elf magic going on there, but that that connection that they have, yeah. their their love for each other, um, allows him to endure beyond what might seem yeah. immediately impossible. Absolute legend, Carl Urban. Yeah, Eomer's loyalty to the king, right? To Theoden King. You have to um, say it in the voice. Theoden, Theoden King. king. <laughs> I can't do um, it. 
he it causes his exile which is bad right and yeah in fact you know leaves kind of leaves his sister to the mercies of uh what's his name yeah, Wormtongue, it, it right? leaves them undefended it leaves them undefended there are lots of problems there but his loyalty ultimately causes him to be available when gandalf goes to seek out the rohirrim and causes them to be able to come back and save the day at helm's deep turn the tide again mm -hmm. against evil right Similarly, I mean, there are so many examples. Sam returning to help Frodo even after he sent away, allowing the ring to be thrown into Mordor, causing vic ultimate victory. You know, yeah. there's even an in-universe kind of super meta version with the eagles showing up at the end, right? Where you knew of the existence of the eagles before and you knew that every so often they would align with Gandalf. They were friends of Gandalf. And yeah. in the kind of service that Gandalf had done them, which is, you know, shady and in the background, and you don't really know what it was, but I, it's in the books. It's more elaborated on in the books. I, I still don't know the deal with the the eagles, but I'm, I'm going to trust you on this one. Yeah, I mean, to, to the extent of my understanding, Gandalf has a long-standing relationship with them, partially because he's technically canonically a demigod. I'm not sure how it all works. Don't quote me on this. But, but so your point with, with point respect being, to them appearing at the end is... Them appearing at the end is not random chance where it's, you know, as many people joke it is that, well, why couldn't the eagles have just shown up earlier, right? The eagles have a set of principles and are kind of this dignified race that aren't just at the beck and call of people. And yet, yeah. because of their respect for Gandalf and the respect that Gandalf shows them and other things, mm -hmm. um, they are willing to come and help and again, contribute to the defeat of evil. So all of this, I think, speaks to Tolkien's thesis on the greatness of potential in human beings to reflect attributes that are embodied by eucatastrophe and joy and truth, which it reminds me of another, a, a series of quotes from multiple different religions it's an um, idea that's been repeated in many different forms. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. the there are the classics in Christianity. You have, you know, the kingdom of God is not here or there. The kingdom of God is within you. Mm -hmm. In Islam, um, there is a, a passage that reads, think thyself a puny form when the universe is folded within thee. Um, even in Buddhism, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. And I think... All of this has very interesting implications for our daily lives. It, you know, it really implies, which you brought up and, and we'll talk about in greater depth in later episodes, but there's this really intricate web of connectedness, both between humans and between humans and a kind of greater logic, logic that is greater than the collective, that causes it to be such that what we do, the decisions we make and the qualities we reflect really matter, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't feel that way in the moment. Yeah. And even if it doesn't feel quote unquote logical mm -hmm. in the moment to reflect those, those qualities. Mm -hmm. So, but there are glimpses of that larger thing. Yes. In our, in, on a micro on a macro scale. Right. So, mm -hmm as you said the butter the butterfly effect butter effect <laughs> that that would be interesting the butterfly effect where you show an act of kindness to a stranger and it turns their entire day around right and yeah. that act of kindness might be as simple as holding a door open 
or giving someone a smile. It's not necessarily convenient or... Th this is a very, very basic rudimentary example. Yeah, but... But, but I think even on a larger scale, the butterfly effect is... It can often be interpreted as being a very silly kind of Kind of wishy-washy, yeah. Yeah, but at, at its foundations, what it really has to do with is how you choose to live your life, mm -hmm. right? It has to do with consistency in behavior. So if you work your job, engage with everyone around you, with love and kindness and commitment to upholding principles of truth, your behavior will connect people to one another, mm -hmm. they'll uplift them, mm -hmm. they will be transformed, mm -hmm. right? And that continues as they do the same, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it just fundamentally what the principle means is that your behavior and your actions are more than just its direct result yeah it has a it has continuing influence mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. like how the the way that your grandparents were raised influences how you were raised yes or the way that people have chosen to wage war in the past continues Can, to affect continues us. to affect either the way, way that our society it, it works are both ways yeah right yeah it's just a very general principle yeah right it's, it isn't like a necessarily a you smile at someone. Well, it, I mean, I decided to give no, the I know, most I know. basic yeah, yeah. example. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying yeah. to really, really push it on. It's a very general, broad uh, concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, you say all of this, and if this is really the case, then it deserves the question to be asked, what attributes do human beings have the potential to reflect that are embedded in the meta narrative logic if we assume that there is a meta narrative mm -hmm. right so i mean lord of the rings and tolkien definitely has a thesis on this right so frodo and sam exhibit a lot of love for each other the quote about aragorn's healing hands being the sign of a king right faramir highlighting love for other people over love for violence i love this quote i need to just read it out loud go ahead um, so he says, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, right? Oh, that's a great quote. It's such a good quote. And I mean, as I mentioned multiple times. I think times, the biggest plot hole in Lord of the Rings is how, is how the worst man, Denethor, can have a kid as good as Faramir. That's true. That's true. It's, be it's all Boromir. It's because Boromir was, was such I, I, a lad I don't know that because I don't know the he war. raised his younger brother in a yeah. equally wholesome well, see, way. See, that's a great example of the butterfly effect because Boromir in the story fails. Yes. He, he falls in a very tragic way. Yeah. He, he makes mistakes. But Far through Faramir, his... his his virtues and his, his strong, spirit, yeah. his his impulses for good live on and yes, affect others, yeah. right? Like that's just how the world operates. Yes, yeah. Right is is that even if you have faults, even if you make mistakes, mm -hmm. the good that you do can also spread through others, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I think many people experience this with their parents. Like they either had problems with experience with their parents, or maybe your parents just grew up in a different time and they they had different beliefs that were maybe more prejudiced. Yes, but the good that they taught you to believe in yeah. still is an as a part of them it, it's still a continuation of them and it, your evolution your ability to move forward is a, a mm -hmm. almost retroactive redeeming force one could say right yeah. akin to tolkien's concept of of ultimate redemption through eucatastrophe yeah we can anecdotally say is that true of real life as well you know are these qualities reflected in the logic of real life as well and ask if yes 
what do those attributes mean? What do they look like, right? I think yeah. that's really important because mm-hmm. I think it's easy to say we should love each other. We should, yeah. you know, but but what does that look like, right? And I think that if... Well, and, and also, where does it come from? Because, and where does it come from? Because I think it's very common for people to say things like love, unity, compassion, whatever, like the sweater that you get from wherever. H&M with the compassion logo. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I, I caved and went against my my uh, <laughs> principle. But you see a lot of you see a lot of sloganization yes. of of doing good and and being a good person. And also um, a lot of assumption that it's just innately part of human beings to do that. Or or that it's a very a simple thing where you, you'll know thing. it when you see it. Yeah, you you but... you just be knowing how to do it, right? Nobody yeah. can come and. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so easy to fall because especially because of how difficult and strange and messed up our world is right now and how interconnected it is it's very easy to fall into hypocrisy in our own thoughts yeah and, right? and, and, and me and you's thoughts as exactly well, right? and inconsistency for everyone where you may believe really strongly in in love and helping others and yet just because of the way the world works you just completely forget that you have an elderly neighbor who yeah. may need your help yeah that you've just never met or yeah. you've never taken the time to, yeah. to talk to and show love to they're there are so many elements of unless you have a very strong understanding of where your love needs to be coming from mm-hmm. and why everything is is so tied into this this truth right mm-hmm. unless the, the the showings of compassion and love and enduring tenderness like you said for the story mm-hmm. uh, come from very strong foundations it's not always going to manifest itself in a consistent way in your life, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Often you see people talk about love in the same breath that they talk about how much they hate someone else, yeah. right? You'll see someone gossiping or talking about how these people are all the worst and yeah. I hate them and I wish they would die or whatever while they, they talk about tolerance and, and love and acceptance. Yeah. acceptance. And it, it's just very difficult in yeah. today's world to, to, to actually hold yourself accountable. Yeah. So I think all of that to say is if any of the things that we've been speaking about today are, if they hold water, then they bear further investigation. They bear, you know, you, it's, and we, we, we don't have the answer. We, we don't, we can't come and say here exactly what love looks like, but Mm -hmm. it definitely deserves a concerted effort to really dig into it, really look places. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about it in a later episode. Yeah, for now, I think it's it's good to leave things open-ended, I guess, because this is such a huge idea. Mm-hmm. We've kind of started very big yeah. with our first episode. And I think the whole the whole thing has been a little more serious than we usually are because of how, how important this idea is yeah. and how it should be taken seriously. But we definitely love to hear what people think about interconnectedness, meta-narratives, eucatastrophe, love... And we're definitely going to talk about them more and in our spare time. Uh, (laughs) I mean, technically, this is our spare time. We'd love to hear from you guys. Also, because this is our first episode, if you have any feedback for how we're doing things. Yeah, let us know if there are weird noises in the background. There's a bird downstairs that is has been making little beeps on on the clock every 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so. We also don't have a particularly high quality setup here, so let us know if the audio quality could be better or anything that you want, really. 
And yeah, I guess we can... Can I end on the quote? I know we already sure, said yeah, it, but ahead. I want to end on the quote. End on the quote. Like, bring us home. Frodo goes, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. See you next time, guys. Yeah, signing off. Thanks for listening.